Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Philip Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing with the series Early Christian Portraits of Jesus. In this case, we have the second of two episodes on the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospel of John. At this point, we continue on with the second half of the Gospel of John, dealing with the portrayal of Jesus as the Son sent by the Father, who performs signs that point to that identity. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's look at some more aspects of the discourse that happens in the conjunction with the I am the light of the world discourse, because it'll help you understand better how Jesus is portrayed as the Son sent by the Father and other aspects of the portrayal of Jesus here. By the way, in chapter 8, you have the lifted up theme again that we had explained to us earlier on. But what I really want to draw attention to is the son and father theme and what it tells us about the high Christology of John. Jesus is interacting with the Judeans there. Some of them believe in him, but others among the Judeans are not believing in him. And they're claiming to be descendants of Abraham. Claims of being sons of Abraham and then there's going to be, well, maybe you're really the sons of the devil. And so there's some antagonism going on between some of the Judeans and and Jesus here in the narrative. And then you have this whole section, which is very important for understanding the high Christology of John's Gospel. So I'm in chapter 8, verses 49 and following. We have the accusation Jesus is is a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, Whoever keeps my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets also died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. He of whom you say, he is our God, though you do not know him. But I know him. If I would say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Judeans said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, this is the key one here, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Here Jesus is alluding to a very important passage in the Hebrew Bible, the passage that involves the burning bush, where Moses encounters a burning bush that is representative of God. He bows down to God, and it's the whole conversation that God has about his name, and it's I am. And I am is the basis of Yahweh. The word Yahweh comes from the word to be. Here Jesus, in the narrative of John's Gospel, is portrayed as claiming to be I am. Before Abraham was, I am. People are totally offended. The Judeans are offended by these claims. As the emissary of the Father, the Son is representing I am, Yahweh. And so that's what you have there in that discourse, underlining that high Christology of John. Let's move on to the next sign. Sign number five, which is right next in chapter nine here. Here he heals a blind man. And as usual, when the sign is expressed in Gospel of John, the discourse usually directly relates to the sign. So he heals a blind man, and then Jesus is going to go back to a theme he's already addressed, I am the light of the world. He's also going to be the gate and the shepherd too in this section. 
So here it's the festival of dedication. People are saying, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you and you do not believe. And then it expresses a bit more another phrase that I want to draw attention to about the identity of the Son with the Father and the oneness of the Son with the Father that is involved in the Son being the emissary of the Father. Here's the phrase in verse 30. The Father and I are one. The reaction of the crowds to his statement that the Father and I are one? The Judeans took up stones again to stone him. This is blasphemy. He's claiming to be one with God. So the characters in the story help us interpret what the Gospel of John is trying to portray about Jesus, don't they? The Father and I are one. I represent the Father. You're seeing the Father by seeing me. You're seeing the glory of the Father by seeing me. So that gives Jesus the position to say that. But the crowds, some of the crowds, do not interpret it that way. They say this is blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. You then have the next sign. The next sign is in chapter 11, where you have Lazarus, who gets raised from the dead. Lo and behold, what is the long discourse about Jesus following up on the resurrection of the dead? I am the life. So that once again, the discourses correspond to the sign that Jesus performs. I am the resurrection and the life is the focus of the discourse here. Let's move ahead now to the final discourse that Jesus has from chapters 13 to 17. This last discourse reveals even more of what we've been talking about, the portrayal of Jesus as a son sent by the Father, and the intricacies of what that means for the author of the Gospel of John. Take a look at this phrasing here, chapter 13, verse 20. He was in the midst of having his final meal with his disciples, and he's talking with them. Very truly I tell you, whoever receives one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So there's going to be a chain a chain of being sent that is involved here. The Son is sent by the Father, and whoever accepts the Son accepts the Father and sees the Father. The chain is going to be extended now in this final discourse, that when Jesus leaves, that the disciples of Jesus are sent by Jesus, and whoever accepts the disciples accept the Son, and therefore accepting the Father. And so the sent element that has been there throughout the portrayal of Jesus now gets extended to envelop the disciples. Not only that, but the oneness with God. Let's look at some key passages that illustrate what this is all about. Take a look at chapter 14, still part of this final discourse of Jesus. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus claiming that by seeing him, you've seen the Father. By knowing Jesus, you've known the Father. The identification between the Father and Son that comes by way of the fact that the Son is the emissary, the one sent by the Father to represent him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves, the signs. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the extension here of the Son being able to do the works of the Father, 
because he's sent by the Father, and now the disciples being sent by the Son, and therefore will do works like the Father. The circle of the oneness is being extended to include the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Also, you're reminded here of the fact that Jesus is sent from the Father and will return to the Father. The descent, ascent theme. Now, there have been a few places where Jesus says something that shows identification with the Father and oneness with the Father. And then the crowds say some of the Judeans pick up stones to throw at him because he's claiming to be God. But then there's times where there's nuance to that. Remember where Jesus said earlier, I can't do a thing without the Father. We have that underlined again indirectly. We have it in phrase I want to draw your attention to in verse 28 of the same chapter, right after all this talk of being one with the Father, and that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and I do the works of the Father, all this sort of identification, oneness with the Father, you have a statement by Jesus saying, the Father is greater than I. How to reconcile those two views is a difficult thing to figure out. But what you have to do as a historian is at least recognize that there's these both elements that are going on here in the portrayal of Jesus not clear-cut precisely how to understand the high Christology, though clearly it's in the role of being the emissary. It's insofar as the Son is the one sent by the Father. It's only in that role of the one being sent that he is representative of the Father and therefore one with the Father. The signs that we're reading throughout the Gospel of John are all because of the Father sending his emissary to display the Father. Jesus, as the Son, is a display of the Father throughout the Gospel of John. You then have the idea of the paraclete, the one who is to come to comfort after Jesus leaves. So the principle, the idea in the Gospel of John is that Jesus descended from the Father and returns to ascend to the Father, and that when Jesus ascends to the Father, which is the equivalent of his being lifted up on the cross, the paraclete will come, the comforter will come, the Spirit will come will come to be with the followers of Jesus when Jesus leaves. Let's look at one last thing about the the final discourse. Jesus prays in the final discourse, and, and let me read some of this, which further underlines what you've just learned throughout today's discussion of the portrayal of Jesus. Verses 18 and following of chapter 17. Jesus is praying, so he's addressing the Father directly. As you have sent me, the Son, into the world... So I have sent them, the disciples, into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself so that they may also be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Referring back to the prologue, the idea of him being the utterance of God before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make, make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the idea of knowing the Father through knowing the Son, and now the, the, through knowing the message of the disciples, you can know the Son who knows the Father an extension of it out like that. 
Something else that popped up in there is something I mentioned is characteristic of the Gospel of John. In the last discourse, when Jesus talks about the central teaching he believes that the disciples should follow, it's love one another. That's characteristic of John and not the other Gospels. You then, right after that discourse, have the narrative of the arrest and execution of Jesus. Now, there are plenty of commonalities between the Passion narrative in John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this is a place where you do have crossover. But the main difference is the one that I argued earlier underlines Jesus as the fulfillment of the festivals. Namely, that Jesus dies on a different day in the Gospel of John. Jesus dies on the day of preparation for the Passover festival. Passover festival is a celebration of the angel of death passing over the households of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. The angel of death was supposed to kill all firstborns as part of God's trying to get Pharaoh to set the Israelite slaves free. And then they put painted on their doors blood of the Passover lamb in order to symbolize we're Israelites, angel, don't come and kill our firstborn. The death of Jesus takes place on the day of preparation, just before the day of Passover, whereas in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' execution happens after the Passover. The last meal Jesus has in the Synoptic Gospels with the disciples is the Passover meal. Whereas in the Gospel of John, it seems to be important for the overall portrayal of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because remember, right at the beginning of the narrative, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus dies on the day that lambs are prepared and are killed in order to be eaten for the Passover festival. And so Jesus overall is portrayed as the Lamb of God who dies as a Passover lamb to make up for the sins of the people. So let me read how the gospel ends, at least before the epilogue that was added later on. So at the end of chapter 20, you have this as the final statement. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The thesis statement. In terms of locating John's gospel within early Christianity, something that you've hopefully learned today is that you shouldn't just uncritically blend it together and imagine that the people who are using John's gospel are exactly the same type of Jesus followers as the ones who use Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And even in the case of Mark and Matthew, for example, you couldn't assume that the same type of Jesus follower would be using those gospels. A very Gentile gospel versus a very Judean gospel. And with the gospel of John, we're out in left field in terms of very little commonality with the synoptic gospels with the exception of the story of the arrest and execution of Jesus. And even there, a different day in which Jesus dies, but nonetheless, very little in common. And so we're seeing here maybe glimpses into another type of Christianity, another type of groups of Jesus followers who are making use of this gospel, namely a group who claim to have a link to Jesus through this beloved disciple that they refer to frequently. The authors of the Gospel of John claim to have eyewitness testimony from the beloved disciple who witnessed, for example, in the execution, the stabbing of the side of Jesus in water and blood coming out of the side. And then the reference to the beloved disciple testifies to this. And so there's a claim on the part of this particular group of Jesus followers of having a link to a particular eyewitness of Jesus' life. However, there are both Jewish and Hellenistic elements to it. In the tutorial, we're going extensively into the prologue, which illustrates this well. Let me say a couple words about it, though. 
The prologue illustrates well this Hellenistic and Judean background to the Gospel of John. Remember that Gospel of John, like the other Gospels, are written in Greek, so you can expect Hellenistic elements to it. But on top of that, even the portrayal of Jesus as the utterance of God, as the Word of God, as the Logos, could be understood by audiences in two different ways. Say you were a Greek who lived in Ephesus, and you were hearing the Gospel of John read to you in a gathering of Jesus' followers. You as a Greek, say you were somewhat educated, you might be familiar with Stoic philosophy. In Stoic philosophy, they have the term logos as central to their overall explanation of what the philosophical life is. In Stoic philosophy, the logos is the organizing principle of the universe. Logos is reason. It's one way of translating it. Word is another way of translating it, but you could translate in the beginning was reason and the reason was God and the reason, etc. God's reason, his reasoning, his rationality, his mind, his ability to think. You, as a person familiar with Stoic philosophy, might start thinking Jesus is the organizing principle of the universe in alignment with which we need to live a life. Say you're a Judean hearing this gospel read to you in Ephesus in the late first century. You're a Judean who's very familiar with the Hebrew Bible, that you're familiar with Proverbs. You already know of this idea that Judeans have and that Israelites had before them. Ideas of God can be expressed by God and words will come forth from the mouth of God. The wisdom of God can be expressed in words and that the act of God speaking his wisdom, his thoughts, can actually make things happen. You're familiar with the creation narrative in Genesis where when God speaks, when an utterance comes forth from the mouth of God, that utterance actually makes things happen and creates things. You're also familiar with the idea of God's utterances sometimes being the Torah, the law, the basis on which the covenant that you have with God is lived out. In Proverbs, you have the idea of lady wisdom, that God's wisdom can be expressed as a personified figure. It's really the wisdom of God, God's thoughts as a woman. This is very familiar to you. And so you might start to think when you're hearing, in the beginning was the utterance, the thoughts of God that become expressed in oral form. You might think starting to sound like the wisdom of God that comes out from the mouth of God, who is Lady Wisdom, there with God in creation in the Proverbs example. In Sirach, Lady Wisdom is also the Torah who came forth from the mouth of God to the people, to dwell among the people of Israel. You might start to identify and understand the prologue of John along those Judean lines of thought and start to see that this author of the Gospel of John is identifying Jesus with the wisdom of God. So this Hellenistic and Judean way of hearing this Gospel is potentially there. In locating John's Gospel within early Christianity, I wanted to at least underline that, the Hellenistic and Judean elements of it and the ways in which the Hellenistic and Jewish audiences who would hear it might interpret it differently. But basically, you also have a way of continuing on and studying this particular type of Christianity because you not only have the Gospel of John, you have later on letters that are written by a guy named John the Elder, not to be confused with the author of the Gospel of John, but nonetheless that John the Elder who writes these letters clearly is familiar with and is saturated in the same ways of understanding things as the Gospel of John is. So that when you read the epistles of John, you have light and darkness eternal life, loving one another as the central command, 
These characteristics of the Gospel of John are characteristic of a type of Christianity that is reflected both in the Gospel of John and in those epistles. And so that you as a scholar can start to place the Gospel of John by comparing it with the epistles of John and start to say, okay, we're seeing Johannine Christianity here, a John style of Christianity that seems to have its own characteristics that are different than Pauline Christianity that you learned about so much earlier in the course, that are different from the Gentiles who are reading and hearing Mark's gospel, that is different than the Judeans who believe that you need to follow the Torah to the T who are hearing Matthew's gospel. And so you can begin to plot out the types of Christianity carefully that you're seeing reflected in these gospels, reflected in their portrayals of Jesus. This ends our discussion of the portrayals of Jesus in the Gospels, generally. And we're moving on, though, to a document that portrays Jesus, even though it's not a Gospel. This comes to the end of our discussion of biographies of Jesus. But we're still going to be dealing with the portrayal of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. When we come back, we'll get a glimpse into another Christian author's understanding of who Jesus is. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007 Real World Records and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.